Well, hey, it's good to be with you today. It's good to see your faces, whether you're here in the room. We're also excited for those of you who are turning in online with us. So if you're sitting at home with your dog or your cat on the couch, go ahead and give your dog a little pat on the head for me. If you're sitting on the couch with your spouse at home, you can pat them on the head too. Just don't say it's from me. If we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today is week two of our series on Colossians called Adulting. And in this series, we are reading the book of Colossians together and seeing how the Apostle Paul is helping a young church see what it looks like and what it takes to become adults in the faith. And if you weren't here last week, you need to make sure that you hop online and check out Pastor Mike's sermon where he got us rolling by talking about how the first step in growing mature in our faith is to get Jesus right. So get online, check it out. It was a really good sermon. Now, there's probably a few of you who are like, yeah, I'm at church today, but I'm actually thinking about the Super Bowl. Any Super Bowl fans in here? You got a couple. All right, there we go. Well, if you didn't know, tonight is Super Bowl Sunday, which means that at some point tonight, a whole bunch of supersized dudes are going to line up on a field and compete in what a lot of people think is the biggest sporting event of the year. Now, I'm not much of a, a sports fan. Usually my favorite part of Super Bowl Sunday is those mini barbecue wieners you get at people's Super Bowl parties. Are there fans of the mini wieners out there? There we go. That's what I'm talking about. But there is something that I find fascinating about professional sports, and that is how incredibly hard these guys work at achieving their dreams of becoming professional athletes. I mean, tonight you are not going to hear anyone interviewed at the game say something like, you know what, I didn't have a job, and I was looking online for job openings, and I found that there was a team called the Buccaneers that needed a player, so I gave them my resume, and it worked out great. You're not going to hear any of that. Instead, what you'll end up hearing are stories of guys who have literally committed their entire lives to becoming pro athletes. A lot of these guys were playing football in like their diapers. They worked all of middle school and high school and college at learning their sport, and they practiced their skills. They worked on their fitness. They learned the ins and outs of every player, team, position, and play. They literally dedicated their entire lives to pursuing this passion. And even when they become professional athletes, it still consumes really every part of their existence. It determines how much they eat. It determines their sleep schedules. It determines their travel schedules and where they live. These guys invest their entire lives into being an athlete. Now, there are some genetics that go into becoming good at sports because no matter how much I practice and work out, I'm never going to be a pro football player. Uh, I'm all of 5'8 with stubby little limbs, and if you were to like throw a ball at me right now, it would have just as good of a chance of hitting me in the face as it does being caught. No amount of practicing is going to get me to the level of these guys. But you know what? Even if I had some natural genetic aptitude, I probably would never get to that level of professional athlete because I just don't really care about sports. Nothing against you if you love sports, but I would much rather invest my time and effort and money into other things like, I don't know, fly fishing or finding out where the best donuts in Metro Detroit are. Everyone, they've got different ideas about what they want to invest their lives into. Some people want to become pro athletes. Others want to invest their lives into their careers. Some people are all about fitness. Some people want to have kids and be the best parents imaginable. And others want to spend as much of their lives on their hobbies as is possible. 
everyone has a different idea about what they want to invest their lives into. And here's our important adulting skill for the day. Not everything in the world is worth investing our lives into. It's just the simple truth. Not every endeavor is as important or wonderful as we think it is. And so an incredibly important adulting skill is understanding what things we should invest our time and effort into. To be mature and responsible adults, we need to have some capacity to see what is worth investing our lives into and what isn't. I think there's going to be a lot of people when they come to the end of their lives that realize that they invested a lot of time and effort and thought into things that have a lot less value than they thought they would. One of my favorite books, it's a little book called In the Name of Jesus, written by a guy named Henry Nowen. And in the introduction, he wrote this. He said, after 20 years in the academic world, as a teacher of pastoral psychology, pastoral theology, and Christian spirituality, I began to experience a deep inner threat. As I entered into my 50s and was able to realize the unlikelihood of doubling my years, I came face to face with the simple question, did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? After 25 years of priesthood, I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with the burning issues. Everyone was saying that I was doing really well, but something inside me was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. I began to ask myself whether my lack of contemplative prayer, my loneliness, and my constantly changing involvement in what seemed most urgent were signs the Spirit was gradually being suppressed. You see, Henry Nouwen, he was a priest and an academic theologian, and he spent his entire life pursuing the academic life, and it really paid off for him. He toiled at gaining an exemplary education. He ended up researching and writing some famous books and papers, and he lectured classes. He had invested his time and his money and his effort into building the type of career that most theologians dream of. He published significant works. He'd been a professor and faculty member, first at Notre Dame, and then at Yale, and then at Harvard. He had reached the top of his field. But he realized something. While he had grown in his career, while he had been recognized as a voice of authority and as being hugely successful, while he'd done all the things an academic could dream of, he had not invested the time that he should have into something that was even more important. That is, becoming spiritually mature. He may have had a great career. He may have been well-known, but he was not growing in what mattered. That is, being close to Jesus. He realized that he had not invested his life in one of the things that should have mattered most to him. Now, last week, Pastor Mike gave a great sermon on how growing up in our faith starts with Jesus. We have to get Jesus right. He is God. He is our Savior. He has the right to rule our lives. And this week, what I hope we end up seeing is that growing mature in our faith, it is one of those things that is worth investing our lives into. And it requires us to be engaged in our church community. So we're going to dig into Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. We're going to spend some time there, but before we do, let's pray together. God, I thank you for the chance to be here, to uh, look at Scripture, to sing songs, to praise you. 
Thank you for the relationships that exist in this room and the ones that exist online. God, we pray today that you help us learn and grow. Lord, we also want to pray for some of our staff members today too. Pastor Eric just got hitched and we're praying for him as him and his new bride uh, go on their honeymoon and, and form new bonds together. Lord, we pray that they may have a lifetime of living together that glorifies you. We pray for Pastor Mike, too, as he's on vacation. Let him get rested. Let him recharge. Help him have a time that uh, by the end of it, he's saying, hey, I'm ready to get back at it. And Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who are sick. We think of the hard news of cancer that we've heard for several people in the last few weeks. And Lord, we pray for a few families who are struggling as well. God, we ask that your peace be palpable for those families, that those who need wisdom may have it, and that you can comfort people as they walk through some of the harder times in their lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's check out our passage today. This is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. The Apostle Paul, he writes this. He says, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it's been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God, mature in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have, I've never met personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that, they're, that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." This is a great but also kind of a hard passage to understand. We read it, and it's all about Paul's suffering and laboring and agonizing over these churches. And it's honestly kind of hard to see why it matters for us. So let me just lay out what I want you to see, and then I'll try and explain how I got there. Paul, who is at this point in his life in prison, is writing this letter to the churches, and he's letting the churches know that while he is suffering tremendously— the cause that he's suffering for is worth it. And by doing this, he is encouraging us to realize that this cause is worth investing our lives into as well. Just look at some of what we just read again. Verse 24 says, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God's given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. And then verse 28, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God mature 
in the relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Now notice some of the big parts of those verses. Paul basically says that he's glad he's suffering for them because God has given him a mission, or as he says, a responsibility. And that mission and responsibility, it has two parts. First, it includes proclaiming the message of Jesus to everyone. And secondly, it includes helping the Christ followers become mature so that he can help present them to God as mature in Christ. And then he says, these are the reasons that I'm striving and agonizing and suffering. Let's just take a second and think about the Apostle Paul's life to put it into perspective. He started out as a young Jewish upstart who was a leader making a career out of rooting the Christ followers out of Jewish communities. So he was traveling from town to town to town, finding out which Jews had dedicated their lives to following the teachings of Jesus, who people said had raised from the dead. And he was taking those people and was punishing them, either by sending them to prison or by having them stoned. And by doing this, he was making a name for himself amongst the Jewish people. He saw himself as like the preserver of truth, a champion of the Jewish faith, a person who was going to keep that Jesus-following riffraff from irreversibly changing the Jewish traditions. So needless to say, when Paul encountered Jesus while on the Emmaus Road and became a sold-out Christ follower, uh, his fellow Jews were not too happy. Because when you have a champion of your cause that jumps ship and becomes a champion for the other side, it usually doesn't go super well. It'd be like Jim Harbaugh um, leaving his position at Michigan and becoming the head coach for Ohio State football. People would be uh, aggravated. And um, not only that, but Paul, he was proclaiming the message of Christ to non-Jews throughout the empire, which actually in the early days of Christianity did not make the Christ-following Jews very happy. Add to that, his message had such an impact on the Gentiles that in some of the cities that he went to, entire communities had their ethics and their economies turned upside down. In fact, when Paul went to Ephesus, he preached Jesus, and a bunch of craftsmen ended up coming to Jesus. Or, yeah, coming to Jesus. And these craftsmen, their primary business was actually making idols for the temples. The city got so upset that these men burned their, their idols and, and wouldn't make them anymore, that the town threw a riot and tried to kill Paul. So the pagan Gentiles, they viewed Paul as a menace and threat to their way of life. Add to that, most Christians were also just suspicious of Paul because he'd spent most of his life trying to kill him. So why do I tell you this? Uh, it's because Paul's life was a constant dramatic sufferfest. Literally, everyone wanted to kill him. He didn't have a ton of friends, and he ended up in prison a bunch of times. In fact, what we're reading was written in prison. By his own account, Paul tells us this. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. In case you're not following that, that's when they whip you to the point of death. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, 
in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. We get it, Paul. You were in danger. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This dude suffered to make sure that people had heard about Jesus and were able to grow up in him. Now put yourself in the position of people who would have heard about Paul's life. So a good chance you would be thinking, Paul, man, what are you doing? Is it worth it? You're probably going to end up dead soon, and the last few years of your life have been brutal. Maybe you need to take this Jesus thing less seriously. So in our passage, Paul, he does not allow us to think that. He says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Paul's basically saying, don't see what has happened to me as being bad. See it as a life well spent. In Paul's mind, being involved in the work of helping people become mature in the faith, it's such a great cause. It is such an important thing that he rejoices that he gets to be a part of it even though it's meant a life of suffering for him, even though he has literally given everything only to be met with suffering and hardship, he says, I rejoice in this suffering because I've been a part of this. If Jesus thought it was worth suffering for, I rejoice that I've had an opportunity to do the same. Paul sees the maturity of the church as being such an important cause that he would gladly give everything, even suffer, to try and help it come about. Everyone else, they look at Paul's life and they're like, man, is it worth it? Your life's terrible. To which he replies, I rejoice in the chance to help make sure people are mature when they're presented before God in the last days. And here's the lesson that we draw from that. We're not Paul. Our lives are not going to look like his, but we can still see from the way he lived his life for Jesus that growing mature in our faith it's not something to be put on the back burner. It's not something to pursue here and there when we have time for it. Growing mature in our faith, it's one of the things that is worth investing our entire lives into. Now, I want to take out our shovels and dig in deep here. And I think we need to answer an important question. And that is, what does it mean to become mature in our faith? Well, there's probably a million ways to answer this, but our Bibles, the words that they translate here as mature, or some of your translations might say perfect, it is the Greek word teleos. And this word, it carries the idea of bringing something to completion. So when a child is fully grown, when they've reached the zenith of their growth, then their body has become teleos, or mature. When a potter has shaped his piece of pottery into what he wants it to be and is finished, then the pot is teleos or finish, or completed, or fully formed. So when Paul talks about us being mature in our relationship to Christ, he's saying he wants to present us as fully formed in Christ, to be able to present us looking and thinking and acting as much like Jesus as we possibly can. We actually see this a bit more clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers, so that the body of Christ may be built up and become teleos, mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. 
Becoming mature in our faith, it is the idea of becoming fully formed in Christ, looking, acting, and thinking in the ways that he wants us to. A lot of you know that my, um, one of my first jobs was as a bike mechanic. When I got my first mechanics job back in high school, I was awful at it. I struggled with even the most basic elements of bike repair. But every night I'd go home and I would read everything that I could on bikes. I bought this book called Zen and the Art of Road Bike Maintenance, and I probably read that thing cover to cover like five times. And then I took an online bike mechanics course, and I would practice everything that I was learning. And at work, I would ask the other mechanics to show me what they were doing and why. And pretty soon, a lot of the tasks that were once out of my league were becoming just routine. And the even harder tasks, they didn't seem so crazy to me anymore. I had begun to understand how to adjust a shifting system and how to diagnose a squeak or a groan on a bike and which parts were compatible with others. And I kept learning and practicing and doing, and I made a whole bunch of mistakes, and I learned from those as well, and I slowly got better. And you know what? I'm not a perfect mechanic, but if you were to put a broken bike in front of me now, I would look a lot more like a knowledgeable bike mechanic today than when I first started. This is the idea of teleos. We grow, we form, we mature into something. But there's one huge difference between teleos of being a bike mechanic and teleos in our faith. You might become the best bike mechanic to ever walk the face of the earth and theoretically know everything there is to know about fixing bikes. But we know from life experience and from other passages in scripture that we will never perfectly live like Jesus in this life. Because of our brokenness, we will never be able to perfectly obey him until he comes back and perfects us. But it is crystal clear in Scripture that we can become more mature in our faith. And becoming more mature, it's a huge part of our calling in Christ. So with all that, I think a helpful way to think about spiritual maturity is that maturity is when we are growing more and more consistent and letting Jesus rule and direct every part of our lives. Over time, we should be learning more about what it looks like to walk with Jesus, and we practice it, and we try to apply it to our lives, and we look to the lives of those around us who are more mature than we are, and we learn even more. And we pray, and we read, and we look to Jesus some more, and we start to understand more about how Jesus wants us to invest our singleness or invest in our spouses, And we start to see what it looks like to try and bring Jesus into how we raise our kids and what it means to try and be a Christian at work and why generosity is so much better than hoarding. And so we learn more and we keep trying to apply it and we pray for help and we confess when we screw up and we try some more. And over time, some of the things we thought were so foreign about walking with Jesus become a bit more routine. And we start to understand Jesus' will and his ways, and our lives start to reflect it bit by bit, more by more, over time. We grow to learn Jesus' ways, and we become more consistent in living those out. Never are we perfect, but over time, we should see progress. This is the idea of maturing in our faith. But it doesn't happen unless it's a priority. And in this passage, Paul's point is so clear. Growing in our maturity, it needs to be a priority. He said, we want to present them to God, mature in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard. 
Maturity is something we should be investing our lives into. So I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be real with yourself. Not so you can feel guilty, not so you can feel like you'll never measure up, but so that you can have an important gut check moment. Where does growing in your spiritual maturity fit into your priorities? We're all growing in something. Maybe you're growing in your skills at work. Maybe you're growing in your extensive knowledge of what shows are good on Netflix and which ones aren't. How does growing in your spiritual maturity fit into your priorities right now? Is it something that registers as important? Does it stack up to your hobbies? Does it occupy as high of a priority as your favorite sports team? Maturity in our faith, it's not just something that happens to us. It's something that has to be pursued. And it requires us to try and commit to growing. But as we see from Paul, it is worth it. It is worth investing our lives into. Now this is where we need to be careful because I don't want people to feel like, oh, I guess I need to dedicate every second of every day to learning and growing more. I need to go online when I get home and sign up for a seminary class. And then I'm going to watch every Bible project video that I can find on YouTube. And I'm going to sell all my fiction books and buy a whole commentary collection. And I'm never going to watch TV again because that's the time that I should be praying or studying my Bible or singing worship songs with my family. You know, some of those are great things. But true maturity, it happens when we learn about Jesus and then try and apply that to our everyday lives. Every day at work, every day with our family, the ordinary, normal, and sometimes monotonous lives that we live. But there's something in verse 28 that applies to this too that I want you to see. Check out verse 28. It says, So we tell others about Christ warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God's given us. We want to present them to God, mature in their relationship to Christ. If you're a grammar dork, you might notice how Paul here, he gets a little funky with his pronouns. I mean, for almost the entire passage, he has been using the first person singular pronoun, I. But here, he switches to the first person plural, we. There's actually a lot of debate in scholarly circles about who the we that Paul is talking about means. Um, when he says we, is he talking about himself and Timothy, who's also writing this letter with him? Or is he trying to include his audience in the things that he's saying? Now, based on how the pronouns are used here and in the following verses, most scholars, and I agree with them, they think that Paul is trying to include his audience in what he's saying. And this is huge because all of a sudden, Paul, he is communicating that this process of helping people become mature in the faith, it's not something that he does. It's something that we do. We tell others about Christ. We want to encourage and teach. We want to present them to God mature in their relationship with Christ. And then notice uh, who the object of the verb is in the second half of 28. You didn't think you'd be coming to an English class today. I apologize. He says, we want to present them to God, mature in their relationship to Christ. Well, who is them? Them is the church. The grammar here is so important. We, the people who make up the church, 
leaders and lay people alike, we tell others about Christ. We warn people. We teach everyone with the wisdom God's given us so that we, the people who are the church, can present the church, this group of people that we are a part of, to God as mature in their relationship to him. This is the point. My growing in maturity is directly linked to my active and full participation in this local expression of, peop- of the people of God, the church. I grow in my maturity when I allow myself to be warned and taught and encouraged by other Christians. And I also grow in my maturity when I'm committed to warning and encouraging and teaching other Christians as well. I have kind of a, a goofy example for you. A lot of you know I like fishing, uh, especially fly fishing. In the summertime, I fish as much as I can. You know, sometimes I'll wake up at like four in the morning to try and get an hour of fishing in before work. And I love getting in my little canoe and tying on a beautifully handcrafted fly and seeing if I might be able to outsmart an aquatic animal with the brain the size of a pumpkin seed. All summer, I love to fish. Actually, I like to fish in the spring and the summer and the fall and sometimes even in the winter. But mostly, when it's too cold to fly fish, I like to watch YouTube videos about fly fishing. And I like to sort and organize my fishing gear. And then I like to watch more YouTube videos about fly fishing and then resort my gear again. And if I'm lucky, I might even have time to read a book about fly fishing. Why do I tell you this? Because here's what happens. I know that growing in my spiritual maturity should be a priority, a top priority. Theoretically, I know that it's worth it and that I should prioritize it more with my time. But man, do I like to fly fish. And I really do kind of want to be the top fly fisher around. And I like thinking about fishing, and I like dinking around with my gear, and I like practicing my skills in the yard, and I like learning new things about it, and it can easily crowd out my desire to grow in Jesus. My best intentions at committing to a life of growing in my maturity are sometimes easily sidetracked by something as dumb as my desire to fish. But when I'm a part of a community like this, and I hear Mike preach, and I sing songs about how great God is, and when I'm a part of a small group that shares their experiences of pursuing Jesus, these things offer me a warning when I'm getting distracted, a warning that Jesus is actually much better than fly fishing. And all of these things, they give me encouragement encouragement to try and invest my life in Jesus. And these things, they teach me about what it looks like to try and live for Jesus day in and day out, which then reminds me about how I should prioritize my time. It's not that I should stop fly fishing. The point is rather that without this community that teaches me and warns me when I'm off track and encourages me to stay the course, I lose my way so quickly and then there's no one to help get me back on the course of spiritual maturity. Paul's making it clear. We're called to be a people who are growing mature in our faith. He says, that's what I suffer for. That's what I struggle and strive after. Your maturity is so important that Paul was willing to try and suffer to help it come to be. We need to take our growth seriously. But in order to do that, we need to participate in a community where we serve and are served, where people encourage us to stay faithful, and where we encourage others, and where we have people who offer us warnings when we're wandering away, and where we can warn others. 
fully leaning into the life of the church, participating in its teaching, its worship, its community, its efforts, its serving, this is the place that helps us continue on the path of maturity. So let me encourage you to make sure you've got a few commitments that you pursue as much as you're able to. One of those is to worship regularly. When we worship regularly, um, this becomes a place where we praise God together, and in so doing, we are reminded of the goodness of dedicating our lives to Him. Second, find spaces to build deeper connections, like being a part of a growth group. When we're a part of a smaller community of believers, we get to form relationships with people who help us stay the course, and we get to dig more deeply into what it practically looks like to live for Jesus. And then third, try and find places to serve. When we serve in the church, we get to be a part of helping other people become mature. No matter if you're a small group leader or a front door greeter, you are a part of the larger picture of helping people stay on course with Jesus. So Paul, he's saying that building up this community of church that works at presenting itself to God as mature in its relationship to Christ. He says, that's why I work and struggle so hard. So let me just try and give you the whole big idea. Last week, we heard an amazing message that growing up in our faith has to start with getting Jesus right. Believing the right things about Jesus is paramount. But we can't just know the right things about Jesus. We have to be committed to growing into those things. And the place where that happens is the church. One of the first steps to growing mature in our faith is simply to committing ourselves to pursuing it and then being active in the community that pursues it together. So be committed to pursuing your maturity and be committed to doing so by actively participating in the life of the church. Let's pray. God, we again are thankful for this group of people who gather to seek their maturity and the maturity of others. Our prayer is that you give us wisdom in what this looks like day in and day out, that you help us find places to connect with other believers on a deeper level. Help us find meaning in serving God. Let us be a church that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, the people who are worshiping now can look back at their life and say, being a part of that community made all the difference in me growing. Lord, we thank you for your message to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.